new series we're starting today. This means war. Now, you thought that when you came to Christ, battles were over, right? In your life like mine, after you came to Christ, every cloud has had a silver lining. Every morning I woke up to a rainbow in the sky. I've been on a sweet parade. It's been a marvelous playground since I came to know Christ. How long are you going to let me go? Oh, that's not the Christian life. It's not a playground we're on. It's a battlefield, a battleground. It's not a sweet parade. It's a stern march from earth to heaven. And as long as we're breathing on that march, we are in a conflict. Just as there is a triune God within us, fighting for us and through us and with us, there is a triune enemy that fights against us. And that enemy, of course, is the world and the devil and the one I have the most problem with, the flesh, or me. Does that surprise you that that's my greatest enemy? No, it doesn't because that's your greatest enemy as well, right? right. Look at the person next to you and say, you're not my greatest enemy. <laughs> or don't. Our text, while you are finding it, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, is a part of a long paragraph that unveils who one of those enemies is. And that enemy is the devil. Lucifer, Satan, the evil one. Now, in case I don't get to it later, and I probably won't in this, the first in this series, I want to make this comment. The triune enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil, people wrestle with how to decide which enemy it is that I'm wrestling with at any given moment. And don't I need to know which enemy it is, the world, the flesh, or the devil, in order to win the battle that I'm in at this moment over one of those three enemies? And the answer to that question is no. I don't need to know or identify specifically which enemy it is that's battling me and I'm battling with at the moment. Why? Because the solution, the victory in the battle is won the same way no matter who the enemy is. So if you're fighting the flesh, you conquer the flesh with the same thing. If you're fighting the world, you conquer the thinking and the philosophy of the world in the same way with the same thing. Or if it is the evil one, you're fighting him with the same thing. Watch this. Years ago when I went through counseling training down in central Indiana, a dear pastor friend named Bill Good, who was letting me set in with one other person for counseling training on a counseling session, prepared us for that session. And Bill said, Larry, and he mentioned the other guy's name, he said, the guy who's coming in as a pastor and he believes he's Satan oppressed. And he's really struggling, thinking he's losing that battle. And he said, what does the Bible tell us about handling Satan as opposed to handling the world and the flesh? How do you handle it differently? And I'm going, 
It's got to be somewhere, the answer to this question. It's in the Bible somewhere. And I looked at him and I finally said, I don't know. And he said, that's because there is nowhere in the Bible that says you handle Satan differently than you do the world or the flesh. You handle them all the same way. Listen, with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, you handle the triune enemy with the book. That's the weaponry. That's the armor that we have. And that's what our text is all about. Now, before we get to it, I mean, this is a longer introduction than the sermon is itself, so relax here a little bit. I need to set the context for you. You've got to see it in the context of the whole book. The sixth chapter, the paragraph we're going to look at, is at the end of the entire book. It starts out in the first two chapters by the Apostle Paul talking to the church at Ephesus about the grace of God that has called them to himself. Don't get so far removed from that day when you were called to be a child of God and given the grace to believe on the Son of God to pay the price from your, for your sins. Don't get so far from that day that you lose the joy of it. And that's what the first two chapters are all about. It's in that second chapter that that all-familiar verse, no, those two familiar verses are recorded, and they are these, for by grace. Are you saved through faith? And did you ever notice the next phrase? That not of yourself. The faith is not your own. Not only is salvation not something you produce, the faith to believe so that you can be saved is not your own. God awakens your dead thinking and mind and heart and gives you the ability to believe. What grace! For by grace are you saved through faith, and that faith's not of your own. And nor is it of works, lest any man should boast. And that text lets us know clearly the difference between Christianity and all religions is simply this. One is a matter of grace through faith. The other is a matter of works. I'm reminded of that time when we are told that we'll all stand in the presence of God, the Lord Jesus himself. And on that day, he's going to say to some people who will be dreadfully shocked and surprised, Depart from me, you that work iniquity. I never knew you. Listen, I think that whole context makes it clear to us we're going to be surprised when we get to heaven who's there and who's not there. They are going to say when they, he says, I never knew you, they're going to say, but did we not do many wonderful, keyword works in your name? And that lets you know why he never knew them. Because they're basing their relationship on what they did instead of on what Christ did. And so, my friend, I hope that you've never understood that. You'll create at this point in this study, that you'll create a holy moment just for you, between you and God. And you'll ask God for the grace to believe that Jesus is the one who paid the price for your sin so that you can have a forever relationship with God.
not count on your works to get you there. Amen, church? If you've never said, I believe, in your heart, that's all that needs to be declared to God. By the way, this kind of flies in the face of what many of us have been taught. It's not a matter of doing anything, including praying a prayer. There's nowhere in the Bible that anyone ever came to God by praying a prayer. It's by believing in your heart that Christ died for you and rose again. Before ever a prayer is uttered, the heart is believed and the soul is redeemed forever. It's a matter of faith. And so I pray that in this holy moment, it's been one for you, in which you finally in heart say to God, I believe. Well, chapters 3, 4, and 5, the next three in the book of Ephesians, move from that grace that makes you his child to what a child does. You're saved by faith and not by works, but by a faith that works. What works do we do? What is it that's in our hearts that we produce? Or rather, that God produces in us when we by faith come to him. That's what chapters 3 through 5 are about. And please don't miss it. There are five things in that chapter. Let me see if I can remember them in those three chapters. Those who are genuine followers of Christ walk in unity, in holiness, in love, in light, and in wisdom. Those are all pretty good qualities. And so chapters 3 through 5, talk about them. I wish I had time to spend with you. You want to spend an extra hour? Okay, three of us together. In those three chapters, those great things that God is doing in us and producing in us, because we have by grace this connection with him. And then you come to the sixth chapter. And Paul begins the sixth chapter with that first word you see on the screen, finally. And he really means by that term, not just in conclusion, but he means by that. All that I've said about being called by the grace of God to believe on the Son and united with all who believe. And all that you in your walk with him find produced in your heart from him above. All of that, there is an enemy that's trying to destroy it. That's trying to devour you. Peter put it this way, be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, like a roaring lion, is walking about seeking whom he may devour. And so that enemy is the one that's in view. And since we have an enemy, that means we are at war. This means war. A triune enemy, and especially in this text, Satan himself fights against all that God is trying to do in your walk and mine. So it's not a sweet parade. It's an intense battle that we're in. You with me? So let's read about it. Finally, my brethren... Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. 
put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and read the last phrases with me on the screen. Having done all to stand. One more time. Having done all to stand. Join me in talking to God, will you? Father, it's an act of grace that's let us be a part of this important battle. We're grateful for that day when you called us to yourself and gave us the grace to believe and trust in your only son and his great work on the tree. Now, my father, as we've gotten to know him and they're walking with him, we're in a conflict. We're in a battle. We need your help. So thank you for texts like this in your great guidebook called the Bible. Thank you for these texts that help us know how to win the battle. And we're just going to whet our appetites today as we open this book, Father. So would you help us just to get enough insight to be interested? And then in the next few weeks to get enough of a handle on what it is that you are asking us to do in order to win in this battle and be a part of the victor's side. So open our eyes to wondrous things out of this text and help us not to forget them as we walk from this place in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's unpackage the paragraph like this. First of all, the paragraph I just read to you starts with two mandates, two directives. And the first is this. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now you notice the words that are in all caps? The word strong, the word power, the word might. That is a reference not to human power, strength, or might, but to God's. And by the way, those three words are not essentially different in the original language. They all three speak about the same thing. We use the O word for it. And the old word is omnipotence. And so when you understand the kind of power that we are mandated to put on, you understand it's the kind of power that spoke everything into existence. And it's the kind of power that will pull the stars out of the heavens by the word of his mouth, bring them crashing to this globe and consume this globe with fire. The kind of power that will end all things as we know it. And the kind of power that will replace it with an eternally uncorruptible earth and heaven. So it's like, come Lord Jesus, I'm ready for that kind of power, aren't you? That was a question. Oh, beloved, what power is available to me and to you? By the way... What's the greatest enemy of man? And I'm not talking about world, flesh, or devil. What's the greatest enemy announced in Scripture? You read it in Paul's writings often. The greatest enemy is death. 
And so great is the might and power and strength of my God. Pat Geisel's counting on this with the death of her mother. Others of us who have had those we love go before us get the importance of this. So great is the power of my God that he could full of this or that he could lead the apostle to write full of the spirit of God. Oh death where is your sting? Oh grave where is your victory? The victory has been won by the might, the power and the strength of Christ in rising from the grave. That's the kind of power it is. And so he looks at us in this text and says, you're in a battle, but I haven't left you alone and helpless. My power, I extend to you. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You got to know in the original language, I want to make Greek scholars out of you before I leave here. In the original language, it's in the passive tense or the imperative, uh, the, the passive imperative tense. What does that mean? That means it's something that happens to you, but not without you. And it goes like this. It could well be read. Allow the strength of the Lord to empower you over the enemy. In other words, you can keep the strength of God from being your power against the evil one. And frankly, much of my life is spent that way. Because contrary to what this verse says, sometimes I fight man's way instead of God's way. When God says, you're going to lose that one. How does man fight? Churches don't fool me anymore. That's the fun side of having been at this for over 40 years. I know when there's a conflict and a battle going on in, in the church, most of the time Satan brings people within who fight man's way. And you know how men mostly fight. It's not with dukes anymore. After all, you're in church. You wouldn't do that in church, would you? Never known anyone to get decked in church. How do we fight? We have our opinions, our thinking. We gather around us, our, our different friends. And if we can amass the majority, we've got the victory. Right? Let me ask you how well that really works in God's work. Just go back to an Old Testament story with me, will you? Do you remember 12 guys who went to spy out the land? Would you like me to sing it for you? Somebody say, no, please, get me out of this. 12 men went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad and 2 were good. What do you suppose they found in Canaan? 10 were bad and 2 were good. Some saw giants big and strong. Some saw grapes and clusters long. Some saw God was in it all. Ten were bad and two were good. The majority said we can't take the land. Ten. Two said we can. Who won in the end? Who had the victory? Do you know that the ten people and all who supported them died and never entered the promised land? God didn't give it to them. But the two they were not the major, uh, majority by human standards. 
The two sought and fought God's way. And those two, in the end, had the victory. They got to walk into the land of promise. Their names, Joshua and Caleb. Great story, great principle, great truth. I learned to stop fighting man's way. I remember a time when there was a, oh, I love them, a Baptist business meeting. There was great division and conflict in the church. And I watched as a man walked down the, it was the left-hand aisle, and sat in, uh, not the front row, but the next row. And he had in his hand a suitcase. And he opened his hand to present his case to the church. And do you know what he had? He opened his case to present the case to the church. You know what he had in his briefcase? I thought, he's going to pull out like five Bibles and five translations. He didn't. He pulled out the church constitution and was going to fight with that document. Now, hold it here. The church constitution is a valuable document that helps define and declare who we are, but it's primarily a legal document to keep us out of trouble with the law. What is our rule of faith and practice? Not a constitution. That's man's writing and declaration. What's our rule of faith and practice? We hold it in our hands. It's the word of God. And as soon as he opened that briefcase and pulled it out, I thought... I know who will win this one. And it's not those who side with man's documents. It's those who wield the sword that we know is the word of God. Don't fight man's way. Fight God's way with his truth. That's how the battle's won, yo. yo. Now, stay with me. Second mandate. Put on the whole armor of God as opposed to part of the armor of God. I want you to think with me real fast here. Suppose you heard the trumpet blow back in this first century day, and you were in uh, in the army uh, that was to protect this city called Ephesus, and uh, you knew what that trumpet meant. That meant every soldier get to the barracks quickly, get to your locker and start putting on the armor. So suppose you go to your locker and you pull out all the pieces of the armor. You put on the strap on the shoes that are meant for war. You strap on the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth. You put over your head the uh, helmet of salvation and then you grab the uh, shield of faith and you've got all those pieces of armor and you just stop and think and you look to your right and your left. Your comrades are all carrying their swords, but your arm feels a little sore today. So I think I'm going to leave my sword in the locker. They got their swords. You get out on the battle line and the enemy comes and faces you and you face them. Who do you think the enemy's going to zero in on? Look at that fool. You with me? Look at that fool. He doesn't have his sword. Let's send our biggest guy to him. And the guy overpowers you, wrestles the sword out of your hand, pulls the helmet off, and you have no sword, but he does. Guess where he's going to strike you? Let me make your day. (laughs) You're 
a goner. Why? Because you didn't put on the entire armor of God. Watch this. Not once in this longer paragraph, but twice the Lord says, put on the entire, the whole, the complete armor that I give you. What does that suggest to you? If I don't, I'm susceptible to the evil one and I fall in this battle. Now, I don't want anybody coming to see me in my office because I talked about decapitation in church this morning. Your kids watch worse stuff than that all the time, I know. My beloved, it's just as serious a matter when we don't take God seriously and put on the entire armor. Now, why do you want us to allow you to make us strong and put on your armor? Why? There are two reasons as we continue unpackaging the paragraph, and the two reasons are these. One, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What's flesh and blood? No, who is flesh and blood? Flesh and blood is the enemy. No, flesh and blood is not the enemy. Flesh and blood is man. And watch this. The real enemy typically uses man. And the text just says, put on the armor of God because man, flesh and blood, is not the enemy. So before we do anything else, look at the person next to you and say, you're not my enemy. Or are you at war with each other? You don't want to say that. No, you're not my enemy. None of us are. Here's the deal. You and I need to learn that Satan uses flesh and blood. And that still means that Satan is the enemy, not the flesh and blood that lets Satan use them. Did Christ have some flesh and blood enemies that Satan used? Yeah. Remember that time when he announced to his disciples, I'm going to the cross? One of the disciples said, not so, Lord. I'll die before I'll let that happen. The Lord spun on his heels and said directly to Peter, who had just said that, Get thee behind me, my disciple. Somebody say no. no. Get behind me, Satan. Satan. That's the very point that is being made in this text. Sometimes Satan uses our closest friends, not the posthumous, but our closest friends. Sometimes he does. Are you with me? Yeah. Didn't the Lord have among his friends one dear to him that he called to follow him? Whose heart Satan entered and he became so controlled by the evil one that he sold him for 30 pieces of silver. And in case you don't remember the story, that's the story of Judas. So close to Christ. Over the years, sometimes 
It's the nearest and dearest flesh and blood that we have that break our hearts the most by becoming tools in the hands of the evil one to bring down the work that God's doing in us personally or our church collectively. You understand it was true in Christ's day. It remains true today. You know what? I'm going to shock you to death this morning. You ready to be shocked? All three of you? goes like this. I have never once in 44 and a half years in ministry, I've never once seen Satan cause a conflict among the people of God or war against them in a red suit with horns, a tail, and a pitchfork. Not one time. Are you surprised at that? No, we're not surprised at that, but we are surprised and automatically assume that Satan never, never, never uses me. I've never prayed for God to remove those whom Satan is using because I'm afraid he'd remove me. I'm sure he's used me in my lifetime. Under the roof that I live, under the roof of the church that I've shepherded. I'm sure of it. My beloved, the great challenge is make sure, this is where the whole paragraph is headed, those nearest and dearest to you are not people that you just accept everything they say, including this interim pastor. Don't accept everything said unless first you lay it by the word of God to make certain it is from God. For it is your armor, it is your weapon, not the counsel or advice of this pastor or any other dear friend who loves you. It's the word alone that is the weaponry and the armor that succeeds against the enemy. Yo? Yo. And so lastly, the reason that he gives in the text is Because we do not wrestle against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. This is the New King James Version, not the King James. And it does no injustice to the text to add that one word, hosts. It's not just spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. Most of us have concluded over the years that what was meant is it's Satan who is in the heavenlies opposing us. But what this text makes unmistakably clear is it's not just Satan. For when Satan fell, he brought with him a host, multiple legions of fallen angels whom he brought with him to this earth to do his dastardly work against God and against us. Are you with me? So the whole point is in the heavenlies, Satan... And a whole host that could surround this globe are at war with God and the people who are on God's side. Now, here's the thing that's tough about that. I've never been up there. Have you? I mean, we're talking above where airplanes fly, y'all. It's at a realm 
where you and I have no senses to enable us to comprehend. You can't taste, you can't touch, you can't see, you can't feel, you can't hear what's going on up there. We have just a little insight into it. One of the archangels, I believe it was Michael, in the Old Testament said to the prophet of God, who in essence was wondering, where is God and God's word to help us in our conflict? Where is he? And the angel revealed to him, I would have been here sooner, but Satan kept me, hindered me from coming when I would have arrived. That tells me there is a whole realm above us where Satan is at work, and we have no idea how great that battle is. The truth is, what God's saying in this text, in the heavenlies, there is a conflict between God and Satan, God's emissaries and Satan's emissaries. There's a whole conflict there that ultimately impacts and touches us here. But we don't see it, we don't feel it, we don't sense it, we can't touch it, we can't hear it, we can't taste it. That's why you seldom know, nor do I, if it is Satan or his ambassadors at work, because it takes place in the heavenlies. And who is the one who's the God of this age and this world, who's ruling in the sense over the heavenlies, as a usurper of the creator and God of heaven and earth. And my beloved is Satan. So, because there is a spiritual host of wickedness that we can't sense, and because the enemy is not flesh and blood that we can sense, we therefore must put on the whole armor of God to stand. You cannot win unless against that kind of enemy unless you put on the whole armor. Your turn. So, so take up the whole armor. You got that already, right? Not a part of it, but the whole armor. Why? So that you may be able to stand. You know what that means? Warfare was different in the first century. The line that was left standing was the victorious line in any war and conflict. It's not like today where you just send drones and bomb the place. It's man against man, fist against fist. It is together standing. I wish I had more time. Eliezer was a man in the Old Testament who stood beside the armies of God when the Philistines marched against them. He watched as the person on his right side bailed and left, and the person on his left side bailed and left the front lines. Did he turn and run when they did? No, he put his foot in the gap that they left and his other foot in the gap. And before the whole fight was over and the war done for that day, 
He had filled the gap for all Israel, for every one of the armies of Israel had retreated and bailed. And he's the only one left. But he was left standing. Why? He brought down thousands of Philistines by himself. There's a little phrase at the very end of that story that tells you why he won the battle. His hand did cleave unto the sword. He never let go of the sword, which always in Scripture is the Word of God. You want to win in the battle? You don't have to have the majority with you. You don't have to have everyone or even anyone else by you. You only have to be strong in the Lord, having a firm grasp on His truth and His word. Then you will win against everything the evil one hurls your way. Listen, if Christ needed to use the word against the evil one, do we not much more need the word? For when he was tempted, the only weapon he used was the sword of the word. Every time he was tempted, he said, Satan, it is written. Where? In the book. The word of God. How dare we think that we could come to God's house on this Sunday morning and hear a 20, 30, 40 minute message, conservatively speaking, and win the battle. It takes more than someone else downloading what they're learning in your life. You must have that spiritual download on a daily basis in order to win that battle any given day. Good charge at the outset of this thing that means war or in a battle. Lay hold of the sword, which is the word of God. Would you stand, please?